there, dear listeners, and welcome to the podcast Bound in Pale Leather, a podcast about the chronicles of the Kenserath by P.C. Hodgel. I'm Catherine. And I'm Gabe. All gates and hands be open to you. In this episode, we go deeper into Seeker's Mask. Now, remember that each part of Seeker's Mask is divided into sections, and each section is divided by Each part is divided by an interim. That was really hard to say. So today we're talking about sections five, six, and seven of part two and interlude two. Our trigger warnings today are gore, isolation, and hallucinations. And we're still in the women's world, so heads up for hyper-enforced toxic gender norms. You know, the whole book. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Summary, if we're being honest. Yeah, no shit. Heads up for hyper-enforced toxic gender norms. Yep. Seeker's mask. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Gabe, would you mind hitting us up with that summary? Absolutely. In this chapter, well, these sections. (laughs) Yep. In these sections, Jame manages to blow off a roof. Eight random captains have a nice chat. Jame has some visions. And Tori finally goes completely off the rails. (laughs) Oh, bud. I love you so much. This is not a good book for you. No, it's so not a good book for it's him. It's not a good book for Tori. Oh, man. At least definitely the first half is, I, I believe we've discussed this before, I'm prepared to say the worst we ever see him. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and, oh, and he has, re- I mean, there are reasons for it, but we as the reader are just stuck in that position of kind of cringing. It's really cringeworthy, but... But we're not there yet, so. As fair warning, I'm on my third desk setup in three episodes, so if there's any clunking in the background, it's me. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the entire world has switched to being audio and online, and I got to hear today uh, on a professional-ass podcast, I actually heard the host say to the guest, is that your chair squeaking? (laughs) <laughs> and on a completely different podcast, oh, I actually boy. heard someone ask a fellow NPR reporter, what's that in the background? Oh, my God, that's my husband doing the dishes. I'll be right back. Clank, 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 bong, bong, bong. So we are in good wow, stead. Wow, I feel so much better about myself all of a sudden. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So I think it's important for everybody to know the world is on fire. And by God, we're doing our damnedest. So <laughs> <Yep>. Anyway... <laughs> On to more cheerful topics. Section five starts off with the tissue. And I just love that the tissue has grown in strength over the past hour. And at this point, I kind of imagine that the tissue is just pissed that he can't get close to Jame and is just throwing shit. I think the other thing is that the tissue just genuinely, his entire personality is that he likes a little bit of chaos Mm -hmm. and... Jame has delivered that in spades. Yes. So he's more than excited to help her out. <laughs> I really love that. I really, really love that. <laughs> All right. So this... thank you. Sorry. I just, I, I like suddenly my gears were in neutral and I could not get another fine. word out. You're fine. I'll talk. <laughs> okay, you can, good. You can hang out. <laughs> okay, good. So after James uh, performance, let's say <laughs> in the Komen Great Hall, she's managed to get 
out of the common and she's managed to run through a set of interconnected courtyards toward the Randier compound and the forecourt. And that means that A, she's back outside where the tissue can reach and B, she can finally hear someone blowing an alarm. Oh, that's right. From somewhere in the keep. And she's just like, please, God, let that be the Brandon captain. The only competent person I've met all night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And she almost runs straight into the Randier, but the issues she runs into in rapid succession are, first of all, the assassin who was tied up in the forecourt with Brenweir has managed to get loose and come after her. And... Second of all, she she sees people in the Randier compound lined up along the arcade and watching her, mm-hmm. and she sees their eyes, like, reflecting light and glowing in the dark, and they just stand there as all of the assassins converge on her and manage to bring her down. Yeah. And Jame is saved not because she wins a fight or because her attacker, the captured assassin who she realizes is also the one who stole the ivory knife he doesn't fumble the attack he just he starts to stab her with the ivory knife which kills with a single scratch and he sees her unmasked face next to the pommel of the knife Mm -hmm. and realizes that the third face of destruction the maiden matches her face exactly yeah and it buys her this tiny, tiny moment to kick his feet out from under him, knock the knife out of his hand, and, like, scramble out of the way. Yeah. What I think is so interesting about this is that it's both the blonde assassin and Jame are both taken completely off guard and unawares. It really is almost a cool glimpse into just how unprepared everyone is. Nobody really knows what's going on. It's utter and complete chaos. Exactly. Like, everybody's in over their head. It's kind of hilarious. It's almost like Keystone Cops, especially once the battle begins. Slapstick. How many how many assassins are there? There are 10. There are now 11. Oh, that's right. There are now 11 assassins. 10 of them armed. 10 of them armed. Two of them don't have their hoods. Yeah. And the only way that Jame knows where they are is using her water flowing and her fire... Water flowing, water and wind, uh, yeah. cantiers, and she can also hear them tripping over each other and swearing. That's how she and knows she where they are. she can hear them taunting her. Yeah, God. She can hear them, like, brushing right past her and saying, mousy, mousy, God. mousy, which, horrible, horrible. Yeah, that's really awful. She manages to, she gets slashed a couple of times because she tries to block like she's wearing a dehen with the reinforced sleeve. But of course, she's just wearing Erilyn's gown. Yeah. She's basically just playing dodge Mm -hmm. with these 11 assassins just kind of flying through the air. Nine of them completely invisible to her. And she finally manages to catch one as they run past her. And she grabs their knife hand and slams her elbow into their chin. (laughs) (laughs) Which is how she gets the hood off the second assassin. Yeah. And suddenly it just turns into this all out brawl in the middle of the forecourt mm-hmm. and this is where jane sees the randier the shadows in the randier arcade and she's like hey a bunch of kendar soldiers would not go fucking amiss yeah, right now like yeah. i'm a good fighter but it's been months since i fought anyone and there's 11 of them yeah 
They're just watching. And this thought flashes through her mind of why don't they help? This line is so interesting. It's okay. It's not interesting. It's eerie how their eyes glowed. Yeah. It brings to mind both the way that Steve Irwin always used to look for eye shine for the wild animals, but also rabid eyes and the green mm. hue. Yeah, the like bright green rabid eye shine. Here's the other thing that I was thinking about. The um, I was trying to remember what that reminded me of because it reminded me of something very specific from the Kenserath. And it's the the shadows. Oh, that's the that's where else we've heard someone talk about shadows with glowing eyes is the shadows <gasps> that serve in the master's house. Yes. Oh, my God. I completely forgot. About, how could I how could I forget about that? Because she doesn't she can't make them out. She assumes they're guards, but she can't make them out. They're just these shadowy figures. Mm -hmm. And the only thing she can see is their glowing eyes. And yeah, that it, it just it really wow. sparked that memory of um up 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 chosen of our lord. Yeah. Oh. With the golden-eyed shadows in the master's house. That's so. And in an effort to get their attention, she manages to like she's thinking about trying to get the hoods off the rest of the assassins and the tissue like shows up to kind of intervene <laughs> and just creates this massive updraft that yanks off like a bunch of shingles, pieces of the garden, pieces of Erilyn's dress and all nine of the remaining assassins hoods. Yeah. And the problem with this, of course, is that after the tissue does this massive gust of wind, there's a beat of total calm and three of the assassins oh, have good enough yeah. instincts to send their shadows out after Jane while it's safe. Yeah. And she almost clears it. Yeah. But one of them clips her left, the left side of her shadow and her entire left side goes numb like she's had a stroke. Like she can't feel anything on her left side. Her foot won't respond. Her arm won't respond. And she barely manages to make a run for it while everyone is still caught in the chaos. Yeah. I really like the interaction between Jame and the one assassin between her and the yes. door. Yes. I also wanted to talk about yes. this a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You talk about it because when I read that, my first thought was, I can't wait to hear what Gabe has to say about this. <laughs> I think this kid reminds her of Candon. Really? I think this kid reminds her of Candon. That did not a cross my mind. A very scared young kid who's out in the dark alone in a place unfamiliar to him, trying to kill someone very important on the orders of someone in charge of him. Oh, wow. I think this reminds her of the very first time she met Candon in the dark outside during the night of dead gods wow because she could she could probably kill this kid yes like even unarmed even handicapped she could probably kill this kid she might even be able to kill this kid fast enough to get up the stairs and inside the door before anyone else caught her mm -hmm. but instead she just barks move and he moves wow i think this kid reminds her of candon that did not occur to me what did occur to me was when she took the horse, Commandant's chef's horse, from the young Kendar girl. The difference is that this kid isn't Kendar. He's not beholden to James' power. Yeah. All he's reacting to is presumably a certain level of sheer raw terror at having been told, you're going to go kill a North lady. It's going to be totally painless. We killed like 30 of these <laughs> people 30 years ago. Totally painless, didn't lose a single guy, everything was fine, don't worry about it, just go. And he rolls up expecting that fight, and instead, like, 
One of them is already dead. A bunch of them watched one of watched the dead kid be flayed posthumously by a shadow spirit. And this woman they told was going to be a totally effortless kill has been beating the bejesus out of them. Yeah. Yeah. He's not wow. I I don't blame him for booking yeah. it. Oh when god, me, me either. <laughs> Please proceed. Please. Wow, that's so interesting. But yeah, no, it, it, even if it doesn't remind her of Candon, it reminds me very strongly of Candon in that first encounter. And the other thing is that it's that first encounter with Candon that makes James so determined to like, she never kills apprentices if she can help it, basically. Yeah. yeah. If you're like a guild master or something and you're trying to kill her, she considers that between you and your god. Like, <laughs> whatever happens to you happens to you. But she's, she, ever since that first encounter with Candon and that conversation with Candon about, like, hiding in the dark while people tried to murder his uncle. Man. I think that she took that one kind of to heart. And, like, I think that's why she tends to be very defensive of, like, trainees and recruits and apprentices. And, like, she never does kill kids if she can help it, which, on the one hand, that's a standard thing of, like, don't kill children. But on the other hand... This is t 11 heavily armed children trying to kill her. Yeah. She would have been within her rights to do harm to this kid. Wow. Even if she didn't kill him. That's really, that I did, I did not expect that. And she does kill the kids later. She does kill the apprentices later with the wind. But like faced with a young apprentice out of his depth in the dark, scared of her, she can't quite do it. She didn't intend to kill. Yeah, and she doesn't, like, as with many deaths that happen around Jame, they're not so much murdered as they are, like, avalanched to death. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it is her mere presence that causes their demise. Yep. Wow. That's really cool. Anyway, that's what I was thinking about with the kid in the doorway. I'm really glad I asked. But yeah, I was thinking about Candon with that. Because I, I really like Candon and Jane really likes Candon mm -hmm. and she feels very protective of him. Mm -hmm. And I think that if the circumstances were different, I think she would likewise be feeling kind of protective of these kids. Yeah. Yeah. And she they're really just out of her depth. They've they've really been lied to. They've really been misled. And it's yeah. not their fault. They had every reason to suspect that she would be a very effortless kill. And she does take it pretty personally that they're trying to kill her. But... <laughs> There's also a certain level of that professional understanding there where she's like, hey, listen, you're assassins, so I think you're garbage by nature, but like, <laughs> you're just doing your job. I get it. Like, my problem is with your I have the master. right to survive, but you also have the right to try and do your job. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And that also fits so well with when she tells Bren we are not to kill the assassin because she wants to know who's sending children to come kill her. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad I asked. I got nothing else to say about that. And so Jane manages to make it inside past this kid into the inner keep. And she makes it first into the death banner tier. Mm -hmm. And then she makes it and she manages to lock the door behind her, which is very impressive given that she basically only has one hand. She manages to pick the lock with a nail mm -hmm. one handed and then gets inside, closes the door, locks it behind her, and has this bare second while they try to, like, slam down the door mm -hmm. where she realizes, you know, the help from Randier is never going to come yeah. because she keeps forgetting that, like, someone inside Gothrigor told them they that she was here. Someone inside Gothrigor told them where her room was, and someone inside Gothrigor has presumably 
been hindering efforts to raise the alarm. Yeah. Because someone wants her dead. Yeah. And so she's like, all right, no one's going to come rescue me. That's cool. No one ever does. I'm going to go upstairs and see what I can figure out. I do think it's very charming. She takes a minute to salute Erilyn as she passes. And I think that's so interesting. And I actually have it circled with the saluting Erilyn and just the subtle weaving of heraldry into this really quick race for her life made me really curious what the salute was. But we don't have to spend much time on it because we've got a lot to handle. Yeah, I mean, I assume it's the... um open hands, uncrossed wrists, greeting a friend mm -hmm, salute, mm -hmm. like someone of equal rank or higher rank. Because mm -hmm. I know, now I know Kensier salutes. Um, <laughs> but I do, I do think it just says a lot about Jame and the way she thinks about Erilyn, that mm -hmm. she takes the minute to salute her. Yeah. Especially because the, there's, there is a certain feeling of like, this is Erilyn's death all over again, but Erilyn fighting, with Erilyn fighting back. Yeah. And, like, Jame is even still wearing Erilyn's clothing. God. So I think it's a good moment. God, they're just... And so... she manages to make it onto the second story with the Judgment Hall while the doors crash open downstairs. I think it's interesting. I already talked a bunch last episode about my theories on the relationship between Thieves' Guilds and Assassin's Guilds, <laughs> i.e. I, they seem not great. Yep. But... These assassins are not stealthy. This isn't like with Jame, where, like, she can pick any lock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she robbed the Tower of Demons in dramatic fashion <laughs> by, like, breaking windows and, like, <laughs> using magic on people and, like, jumping off of gargoyles. But she's very sneaky when she wants to be. These motherfuckers didn't even try to pick the lock. They tried to beat down an yes. ironwood, ironwood door. Yeah, and the only reason that they crashed it open is because the lock broke because it was so rusted. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think you're absolutely right. I think that's fascinating. Well, there's almost this panicked sense of desperation in these kids, mm -hmm. in these assassins, where whatever it is that they would mm -hmm. face after they're done with this task clearly is more terrifying than Jame. And, I mean, she's clearly fucking them up. Yeah, which we get a glimpse of their guildmaster. Oh. And, like, I wouldn't necessarily want to report failure to that man. <laughs> 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 I have a question for you. Hit me. My question is this. Would it be fair to say that Jame only tells herself not to panic when there is cause for her to panic? I think the thing about Jame is that she's really not that high strung a person by nature. No. I don't know. Like, Tori, for example, he's fucking wired. <laughs> He's fucking wired. It may be because of the sleep deprivation. He might just be like that. But Tori is someone who could really stand to more frequently enforce a couple deep breaths. James really not that inclined toward panic. And when she does panic, the reasons are undeniably exceptional. Yeah. Like, either they're undeniably exceptional because, you know, a bunch of assassins have her cornered in a building where she cannot hope to run because they've disabled her ability to do so. And all she can hope to do is climb high enough to find somewhere where she can use one of her relatively limited applicable skill set. 
I would consider that an exceptional moment to panic. Yeah. I would consider that maybe the most valid moment to panic possible. Yeah. I think that's a big part of the reason that she does panic later after she's like half asleep and out of it is because she comes down off of this adrenaline high. And on the one hand, yeah, a lot of shit happens after this, like with Calistine and with Brenweir. But I think a big part of the moment reason she panics later is because like, it's all just kind of catching up to her. Yeah. This is a bad night. Like, even by James' standards, this is horrible. This is the premise of every, like, serial killer horror movie ever, right? (laughs) Being cornered in your home by something you cannot hope to fight or face. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really legitimate moment to panic. And James, as a rule, is very good about not panicking until things are completely, understandably severe for panic. Yeah, that's really true. Her capacity for panic seems to be commensurate with the extremity of the dire situation. She can also just compartmentalize like a motherfucker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's a big part of it. Yeah. Is that, like, she really has cultivated, understandably, given that she grew up in Gant's house and then in the master's house, she has cultivated the ability to just be like, okay, I'm just not going to panic about this right now. I'm just not going to. I'll be, I'll deal with it later. And, like, you know... That means that every once in a while, it looks like she'll panic completely out of the blue. Yep. But if you look at the wider picture, it's all, it's never out of the blue. It's always like six hours after she almost died horribly with no one to help her. Huh. That's really interesting. And as we'll see later on in the last section, she does panic when there is inactivity. Yes. If there's activity, she's totally good. As long as she's going mock She likes having a task. As long as there's a task, she's good at holding off panic. But like many people who are good at handling a crisis, she's not so great at handling the aftermath of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's the thing about Jame and panic. That's really interesting. She's never in a position with the luxury of freezing up and being so panicked that she can't continue. So she tables her panic for later and locks it up in a nice little box. And then the box inevitably pops open and blows up in her face like six hours after she's done not dying. <laughs> I'm really glad I asked about this because this is this is going to give us a frame to reflect on later on in section seven. Yeah. And so. the thing she remembers as she's telling herself not to panic and she's reminding herself that like, yes, these kids have some good tricks up their sleeve, but she also has some. And she's managed to make it up to the high council chamber with the stained glass. By crawling on all fours. She's like clinging to a table to stay upright. And she remembers the conversation she had with Imali in the Ebon Bane, where he accused her of perverting the great dance. And she uh, she tells the memory of Imali, I think maybe my favorite line about the Arinken, which is, you ran away and left us all to make our own judgments. I'll do whatever I damn well have to to survive. Yeah. Because, yeah, the the thing that has always kind of driven me a little up the wall about the Arinken is that they really act like it's still their prerogative to offer judgment. Yeah. And I'm like, y'all bailed. Y'all fucked off. I'm not saying that you didn't have like some understandable motivations there, but you don't really get to roll up and criticize like, hey, listen, does the Kenserath desperately need the Arinken back to like reinstall conscience.exe? <laughs> yeah. Yes. But like, I don't know, they it's they're they're very determined to crucify Jame mm-hmm. for being a darkling, unfallen as she may be. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, man, hot take. Jame is the 
best example they've got for what the Kenserath needs to become in order to survive, A. And B, Jane does the best she can with what she has in order to not die. Yeah. And every once in a while, one of the Iron Ken will show up and I'll be like, if you have so many fucking complaints, then come back and do something. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> And it's that little reflection because when she shuts that memory down, she shuts it down for the chorus of Aaron Ken who was who, who were placing judgment against her. And when she has that chorus of Aaron Ken th- to argue against, she's able to really hold her own. But that is such a cool reflection later on in the book when she's faced with only one Aaron Ken. And I think that in and of itself really speaks to James' experience of who she is in the Kenserath because when she is facing her people en masse, then she's able to hold her own. But when she's dealing with individual people, that becomes a lot more difficult. Yes, exactly. Especially with memories of individual people. Yes. And my point with all of that is when she reflects on the Kenserath people as a whole, then that opens up her imagination and her thought. And her answer to the chorus of Arenken is what allows her to say, and yet, and yet they had given her an idea. Yeah. And this, this, I'm, I love this. This is so good. So James plan <laughs> such a good plan if that's the word i want such a use. good plan well like many of james plans it is absolutely elegant in its simplicity because there are no moving pieces there is no action required she's going to do one thing and end this fight and that's really the way that james tends to plan these things and i mention it only because i think torison thinks of himself as much more of a bigger scale thinker Uh when it comes to planning he thinks like he's a battle tactician yeah and he's a good war leader so like that's how he thinks of himself but When it comes to solving really big problems, he's very much like Jame in that he will just, he'll be like, I'm going to take one action and it's going (laughs) to fix this. One. And the example I'm thinking of is Paradin. Yes. This is a lot like that. They're a lot alike as people. But so Jame just manages to like affix a candle to the middle of the conference table and drag herself up onto the table to stand facing the windows with her back to the door and she just waits for the assassins to come upstairs and she has this moment of like kind of grim satisfaction where she's like at least she had finally taught them to respect her their prey and bought herself a few precious minutes God, because these poor, these kids are scared. Hopelessly out of their depth. They are so far out of their depth. They are creeping. After having smashed the door down, they are creeping ever so quietly up the steps, tiptoeing. And so, James, this is James' plan. She's going to try and use a master rune. That she can't even remember. Yeah, the reason I phrase it that way is because we've firmly established it is impossible to memorize a master rune. You can't learn the book Bound in Pale Leather, as we know from Anthrobar, who burned his entire brain out trying to copy the thing. Yep. But Jame has managed to figure out that she's pretty sure she can reconstruct the rune one stroke at a time from some of the more, like, obscure parts of the wind-blowing Senetha. God. And so she's like, I can't move. 
My entire left side is paralyzed, so I can't dance. So I'm just going to stand here completely still and try and, like, meditate my way through the Sanetha. Yeah. Just like she did in Godstock when yes. she was drunk off her ass with a broken leg right before she danced for the first time as the Batir. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and it it's this... Again, sure would love a TV show. Um, <laughs> sure would. Because this is a scene that I just, it's so beautifully described. Yeah. And it like, I'm not going to read any of it because the second I start to read any of it, I'm going to read all of it. And it's like two pages. Yeah. And it's gorgeous. But it's this scene, we get this moment, rather than being from James' perspective, it's from the assassin's perspective. <laughs> and it's these 11 young boys who kind of creep up the stairs and see James standing totally motionless on the table, facing away from them. And they have this moment where they're just like, God, our guild can never take another contract <laughs> against a Kensir. This is only the second one we've ever taken. The first one is still fucking open, <laughs> and an untold number of assassins have just blipped out of existence hunting that highborn. <laughs> and then there's this one where, like, this one girl who was supposed to be a totally effortless murder full of like glory and victory has kind of cleaned up like <laughs> she's done great we're never doing this again <laughs> and then they all get super nervous because like there starts to be movement on the far side of the table and they think that jame is coming at them but instead it's just her hair like blowing behind her around her face and shoulders and like the braids in, in her hair starting to come loose and her like the tatters of her skirt like twining around her legs like she's standing in a gale but there's the candle at the far side of the table where she put it with the completely still flame. Oh my god that's so amazing! And this is where the blonde boy, the one she captured and knocked out with Brenware, just he can't handle it anymore. Like he he leaves, he books it, <laughs> he runs away. And the oldest assassin in the bunch stops any other boy assassins from running away. Yeah, Jame almost cleaned out the entire <laughs> group just from sheer terror, and that's an achievement. But so they send their shadows up after her and Jame is standing there like completely oblivious to this, staring at the stained glass map of Rathillion, trying to picture this rune. And she's managed to piece the entire rune together by following the wind-blowing cantiers of the Senetha. And she brings the rune to the forefront of her mind and just whispers at, like, the lowest conceivable volume because she's remembering when she used a rune in the Ebon Bane and set a blizzard on fire. <laughs> well, we know how that worked out. <laughs> and she just barely whispers, wind blow. And there's this, like beat of silence and then this huge like inhalation from outside as the windows explode outward and all 10 of the shadows are like ripped off the floor and sucked out into the night all of the assassins collapse on the spot yeah like half of the roof gets ripped away like even the death banners from two stories down are like sucked up the stairs out into the broken windows yeah. into the trees outside it's Amazing. And what's so amazing is that it's not just that the wind blows through anything. 
everything is inhaled. Yeah. It's as if there's this black hole, the singularity occurred right above Gothrigor, and it sucks everything. It's funny you use the word singularity, because that was actually the thing I was thinking about was the death of the Dreamweaver. Yes. Yes. Where Jane almost gets sucked off the escarpment. Because this time she has the um, forethought. She's been down this road before this time. <laughs> so she has the forethought to the second the wind starts, she hits the deck on this incredibly heavy like ebony wood table mm-hmm. and like wraps her hands around the edge and is just like, all right, I gambled my life on my ability to hold onto this table. <laughs> There's nobody here to hold me down. Yeah. yeah. And as, God, as the... Death banners are being sucked out. I really like the phrase, a storm of ancestors ascending. Yeah. Which is how she describes it. I love that phrase. So amazing. This whole scene is really great. I know I say this like kind of a lot, but y'all should like go reread this scene if you haven't already read it. And if you haven't already read it, go read this scene immediately and just like enjoy how gorgeous it is. Yeah. This is a beautifully written scene. And to read it aloud allows poetry to really be present and flow in the words because the mention of the pale faces and the white hands and the the wailing of the sound not only of the wind but of the 10 shadows that are sucked away and and in the midst of all of that someone that we recognize happens to peace themselves together because one of the death banners gets caught on the edge of the table and as the warp strings like start the weft starts to come off the death banner like Mm -hmm. the weaving and before it disappears the threads get caught on this figure who's like hovering in the air and Jame has this moment of looking at bane as he wears like the face of this death banner and smiles at her And then the death banner is swept away and snatched out into the night. And it's, it's a good moment. It is a good moment. Especially because like, this gives us some insight into why Jame is so scared of Bane beyond the obvious, because Mm -hmm. she's really legitimately afraid of him. Yeah. For like a lot of this book. And this gives us some insight into why. And it's because she believes he blames her for the fact that he wasn't able to have his desired honorable death. Like he you know, gambled away his honor on the idea that an honorable death would dis- would restore it. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, it's Ishtir's fault he didn't get that. Mm-hmm. But Jane believes he blames her and that he's here for revenge. Yeah. Why was he here now if not to collect his own blood price? Yeah. Which circles back to what I'd said earlier about Jane in relation to the Kenserath people as a group and a Kenser individually. When yeah. she's dealing with, with an individual Kenser, she sees herself from the position of blame and shame. But when she's faced with the Kenser as a whole, then that's when she begins to defend herself. She's so ready to take... Jane will let anyone blame her for anything. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And I also think there's a really fascinating exchange where... He starts to reach out for her and she shouts, don't. And then she like realizes what she's done and she tries to reach out and grab him, but he's already gone. Yeah. Like he's already done as she said. And she gets this glimpse up into the wind of, and she sees this like storm of black wings 
above the keep with an old man falling through the middle of it endlessly, like falling and falling, but never getting any lower. First of all, really strong Magnus Archives vibes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Of the... The vast. The vast. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Simon Fairchild. God. But it's also a reference to when she was staring at the map, she was staring at a specific place on the map to depict Necrian, mm -hmm. which depicts the Witch King as like a storm of black wings, just for future reference. <laughs> that will become important. Yeah, and as she's like laying there on the table, staring up at the ripped off <laughs> <laughs> ceiling, she has this moment of being like, oh, wow, that was really weird. I wonder what I just saw right there. It must have been an afterimage <laughs> from staring at Necrian on the map. And then she's suddenly like, oh my god, the map. And she sits up and looks around and she's like, I've destroyed this room. <laughs> yep. Not just the room, the roof is gone. All of the, the windows are gone. gone. All of the windows are destroyed. There are death banners like clinging to the broken beams. And Jane just sits there and she's like, Tori is not going to be happy. <laughs> and this fucking finally is where the goddamn guards show up. She has no break. She gets no break at all. Thank God it happens to be the Brandon who show up first. Can you imagine how differently this all would have gone if the guards had shown up five minutes ago? Oh my God. Like if they'd shown up in time to see Jame, to see the assassins coming for Jame and then to see Jame use the rune. Yeah. This would have been a very different book. So different. Like. <laughs> God. I don't know. I think about it a lot. Yeah. Her luck is so bad. It's until terrible. it suddenly isn't really terrible, but it's almost always terrible until it's not. It's pretty much consistently terrible. It's just never quite terrible enough to get her killed. Yeah. Jame has enough time as the guards are beginning to come up the stairs to rummage through all of the bodies to see if any one of them happened to be holding the, yeah. the ivory knife. Because she's just like, I'm not fucking letting that fall into the hands of some random Kendar who might work for the Kaneron. Yeah. <laughs> so fortunately or unfortunately, none of the dead assassins have have the ivory knife. Yeah, she's like, okay, then the blonde kid must have taken it with him. Yep. I love the Brandon captain who makes it in she's so sane. leaning on a cadet. She's using a cadet as a crutch. Yeah. It's pretty bad, actually. Yeah. And first of all, the, the Kendar are sturdy. They are so sturdy. But also, I'm so glad that the Brandon captain got to be the first one in there. She kind of gives this nice little moment of appreciation for Jane because the first thing she says is, A, some fox hunt, and then B, do you always have this kind of an effect on the architecture? And Jane just says, fairly often. But there's, I do think there's... Go ahead. Are you going to talk about the mask? I am going to talk about the mask, but yes, you go ahead go and start. You sure? Yeah. Okay. What I think is so powerful is that this is the first time that Jame has a clear and distinct understanding of the importance socially of the mask. Because when the Brandon captain realizes that Jame is not wearing a mask, the Brandon captain is horrified. I don't really know how to describe that experience, but it's really almost as if the Brandon captain feels so so vulnerable in seeing James' naked face. 
It's the feeling of not of having done something completely normal and understandable to you mm-hmm. and then having everyone around you treat it like you've broken some unspoken social taboo that you never thought to consider before. Yeah. I viscerally feel that because I'm someone who tends to have like a small assortment of like physical stims that I do when I'm thinking or anxious or in some way need to turn my like you know screeching ADHD brain down a notch or two and they're totally normal and standard for me and for the people who know me well and then I'll like be out with another person that I don't know that well and they'll act like I'm doing something fucking inexplicable yeah and I'm like if you could actually just chill out for five seconds and like let me live I'm not hurting myself I'm not hurting you like Everything is cool if you could chill out for five seconds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's very much the vibe of like, Jame has never understood why people are so religious about the mask. And I think this is this is a big reason why, like, no matter how much the women's world as a whole can give lip service to like, oh, well, you know, emotion is private and like, you know, all of Mm -hmm. these things. A huge percentage of it is just people treat them like they're naked when they don't have a mask on. And after a certain point, if the entire world won't look you in the eye Mm -hmm. unless you wear a mask, sooner or later you're going to do it just because you want people to fucking speak to you. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to change your behavior to be more in line with with what they consider normal so that you're not mistreated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why. That's what this that's what this exchange is. And I think it's a great choice to use the Brandon Captain for it. Yeah. Because we have spent like literally this entire book so far, we've spent sitting here being like the only sane person in this entire fucking keep is the Brandon Captain and yep. Trishian. Yep. Yeah. And to have one of the characters that we've kind of come to like and trust and think of as like, okay, this person finally showed up and like brought a bunch of guards and things are gonna be kind of okay now, get on board with that kind of like shaming behavior that acting as if jame has done something unspeakably wrong just by not wearing a mask yeah it really gives a sense for how comprehensive that mentality is Mm -hmm. thank you you said it a whole lot better than i possibly could have and yeah i don't need to say anymore because you said it very well but what this scene really helps to inform me of is later on in the next part we have this to reflect on and yeah but so they have this kind of brief conversation where jame is like jame hears the caner on captain come inside and she's like fuck all right i have like 30 seconds real fast are there always 13 assassins in a casting because there's 10 dead here and one more in a nursery one ran away and presumably there's a guild master thoughts yeah and the branding captain is like my thoughts are that's really fucking bad yeah yeah (laughs) finally finally someone actually acknowledges how fucked up this whole situation is and i like i said i think that's why it's a good choice to have the brandon captain be the one to react that way to jame not wearing a mask and finally get that response from jame of her being like she's not ashamed that she's not wearing a mask but she's being made to feel like she's done something intrinsically wrong by being barefaced in public. Mm-hmm. And like, I think it's fascinating how much she's internalized that. Second of all, 
this is not super related, but Jane did just sort of dance the Senefa. And one of the only places that we see Jane know from her own education that she should be wearing a mask is when she tries to go dance the Senefa for the first time. And she stops like she's run into a wall because she remembers the prohibition that one does not dance the Senefa barefaced in public. Yes. And I think it is fascinating, fascinating that the mistress danced the bear, the Senefa barefaced when she ripped out the souls of the Kinserath. We know this because we've seen the flashback to that moment. And she's never wearing a mask in that moment. And I'm curious to know, I don't think this ever gets addressed. I think I'm just assembling a bunch of pieces from various histories of the Kinserath. I'm curious to know if the obsession with women wearing masks is actually not whatever the people give lip service to, but it's an obsessive extension of the order to wear a mask when you dance the Senefa because of the way that the mistress corrupted the Senefa while barefaced. Well, that would certainly make some sense. Yeah. What you are saying- That's my theory. Certainly is aligned with the social prohibition of going barefaced for a woman. Yeah which is completely different from the Kendar, from the Brandon Captain's response, which is one of mortification. It's the it's the response you would have if you saw, like, your boss naked. Yeah. Like, someone that significantly above you in the social strata. Yeah. Oh, and that's interesting in that, as opposed to Jame reacting, understandably and justifiably, to the prohibition, which is all about control, this is the first time that she has an experience of how that prohibition has affected people whom she has a deep affinity with. Because Jame is a very strong affinity with the Kendar. Yep. Okay. That's yeah. very cool. It's fascinating. Thank you. And so at this point, the Canaron show up oh, and this God. is where shit goes worse. Yeah. Incredibly, there's further down to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because the Caneron captain shows up and storms into the room to, like, corner Jame and says, the next time you're scared by a little wind, try to show some gumption instead of scuttling off. God. And this is kind of what I meant with Jame is willing to let anybody blame her for whatever at any time because she, somewhat as a virtue, given the state of the Kenserath at this juncture, Jame is a big believer that as long as she knows what's up and the people who are important to her know what's up, that's that's what's important yep. Yep. because she's really lived her entire life in a state of like, hey, listen, everybody's going to hate me for being Shanir. Everybody's going to sh hate me for being a woman. Yep. Everybody's going to hate me for being Kensir if I'm yep. in the wrong place of the world. <laughs> so whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, sure. I ran off because I was afraid of a little wind. Sure. sure. There's a pile of bodies in the corner. Let's not talk about it. I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> We're moving on. And I just, I, that's a very relatable feeling. It really, just being really like, is. Nothing I say is going to fix this. So sure. Sure. Whatever. Why not? Why explanations are hardly going to help. But it's in, in that beat that she has that prickling in the back of her neck. And that prickling in the back of her neck is because Brenweir is here. Brenweir, yeah. whose eyes have that cat in the firelight glow of Brenner, red hue. who must have come up through the Death Banner Hall. Oh my god. This is where Jane gets taken into custody by some Caneron cadets. Who are not letting her go now. She has this moment of clarity where she's like, 
these kids think it's worth their lives to let me go. Yeah. Like, they they literally think that they will be executed if I escape again. Yep. Because ca- this is where Calistine comes into the room. I hate her oh, so much. Oh, man. Please I so much, uh, talk about this scene because every time that I've read this book, since the first time that you read this book, however many years ago, I have just loved to Eight. hear you talk about Calistine. Please it's proceed. 10 years ago now. So. So. So, so here's what I'm thinking about okay. Palestine. What are you thinking about Palestine? So what Palestine? Here's here's the relevant details. This is the first time Palestine's been out of her chambers since the Kendar maid dunked her in the mystery potion. Yep, bobbing for bobbing for apples. And instead of wearing the like filigree mask that she normally wears, like barely a mask, she's wearing this heavy veil that covers her entire face and like flattens against her features as she rushes toward Jame. And like, Jame, God bless her, she's had a hard night, she's not at her most tactful. (laughs) And she just sits there and stares as she realizes that the lines of Calistine's face are sagging and like her cheeks have gone like hollow and like her chin is sagging and in a moment of just really astounding idiocy Jane blurts out lady what's happened to your face (laughs) honey you had to know this was gonna go poorly it does and it does it goes incredibly poorly Jane is restrained by a Caneron cadet on either arm who are too strong and holding her too tightly to let her block and Calistine slaps her full across the left face with something like bright reflecting in her palm. And Jame is completely numb on the left side, which in this moment I would consider a blessing. Yes. So the only real understanding she has of what's happened is this like horrified gasp that goes around the room and the cadets like let her go and stumble away. And Calistine says, there, now you also know what it feels like to lose face. Oh. God. And Jame reaches... hmm. I can't talk about this. You have to talk about this. I'll talk about this. Okay, good. This is where that gore warning comes in, because Jame reaches up to touch her cheek and get a sense of what Calistine did to her. And she... She's like, oh, it feels weird. It feels like I'm wearing a mask that's been torn. Mm -hmm. And then she realizes that what happened is that Calistine slapped her with a razor ring, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a ring with a hidden blade in the palm. And the wetness is blood and the tear is her skin. And the hard thing that she's touching is her own cheekbone. And she's been slashed all the way down to the bone. And re-Calistine, um, re-Calistine in this moment. Calistine, because of the way she was raised and because of the world she exists in, her entire motivation in life has pretty consistently been to save face. Yep. And to use that saved face to escalate her social position. Yeah. And it has to have been absolutely insufferable for her to deal with Jame, who doesn't give two shits about her social position. We talked about this before with Calistine trying to get cocky and use Thierry as a control lever Mm -hmm. to, like, manage Jame. And Jame's response was like, tell whoever the fuck you want. I don't want to have kids. I don't want to get married off. Tell whoever you want. Get out of my face. Whatever. And because I think that this, 
like the line now you know what it's like to lose face Callistine has spent all of this time trying to break Jame in the only way she knows, which is to make her lose face and to control her with that threat of like yeah. losing people's respect and yep. losing her social position. Yeah. But that's not something Jame is afraid of. So Callistine has decided to make it as literal as possible. Yeah. And make it so that A, being slapped is disgraceful. Mm -hmm. Jame now wears proof that she was slapped while restrained because she had to have seen the razor ring coming and did not stop it. Yep. That's incredibly disgraceful. Mm -hmm. Especially for the High Lord's sister, like the matriarchs were talking about, for the High Lord's sister to be slapped like a servant, that's really bad. That is an indication that Jame has been treated with no respect whatsoever. Yeah. And three, like... Jame, in a lot of... Okay, I've talked about this already. Callistine has the dubious luxury of being the first person in the Kenserath to understand in it in its entirety exactly the kind of threat that Jame poses to Callistine personally. Yeah. Because Callistine is the first person to really have a grasp on, oh, I see, Jame is a threat to my ability to control Tori. And she interprets that as Tori's in love with Jame, which... We'll get to that. <laughs> so Callistine, who has used her own beauty to literally enchant Taurison, has done everything in her power to completely destroy James' social standing, as well as, to her mind, removing any appeal that James would hold for Tori. Yeah. Which means that in Callistine's mind, losing face in this moment literally means that James has no power anymore. Yeah. The problem, of course is that Jame is a berserker and being slapped means that like, just like it did that afternoon when she flared on the instructress, all of her berserker blood suddenly sits up and goes, hey, what if we fucking murdered everyone in this room? Hey, no one in this room helped us. This woman just cut open our face. What if we killed all of them? And we have all of this power from this master rune that we just crafted just because. Yeah, I was saying before we started recording that Jame is some kind of savant of yeah. the book Bound in Pale Leather. Yeah. Like, Jame is so quick to disregard herself as not being particularly good at anything she does. Like, she's like, I'm I'm gifted at causing trouble. <laughs> and I'm good at the Senetha and the Senethar. But everything else, like, I'm passable because of a lot of hard work. Yeah. But, like, the master runes, Jame is some kind of fucking savant. We never see mm -hmm. anyone else do this. It's impossible to remember a master rune once you're no longer looking at the book. And Jame can... Cr Jame creates two in under an hour. Yeah. And this one that she creates after being slapped is from the end of the book, which is where the really <sighs> dangerous shit is. Yes! And Jame does her damnedest not to use it. She's trying so hard to control the berserker flare that, like, her nails are completely sheathed into the palms of her hands. So mm -hmm. they're completely extended. And then she sunk them into her own hands to try and control the flare. Yeah. And this rune, like, builds itself out of her oh. anger. And I assume that this rune is called Rupture. Like, yeah. the same way all of the other runes have names... This rune seems to be called Rupture. It is created to destroy physically the senses of anyone around you. Yeah. By, like, bursting eardrums and, like, bursting eyeballs. And mm -hmm. I cannot imagine what this does to your sinuses in full <laughs> oh, form. Like, it, I'm sure it's really bad. 
But she manages to, like, half swallow the rune. And so instead of actually speaking a structured rune, she just, like, shouts. Makes noise. the top of her lungs. Like, there's just this, like, scream. And then it's, like, a while before the Kendar can see and hear again. Their nose bleeds. Their noses are bleeding. Like, everyone's eyes are bleeding, and they're completely blind for a while. Everyone's ears are ringing so severely that they can't hear anything else. And, of course, by the time everyone has, like, pieced themselves together, the Canerons don't even fuck around. They just kind of, like, kidnap Calistine back off to her quarters. Yeah, they just pack her off. (laughs) And Brenweir is sitting on the stairs with her head in her hands, and Jame is gone. I just love that the a cadet, it was a cadet. It's not even the Caneron captain. A cadet just says, oh no, not again. <laughs> yep. And this time, of course, it's not like before where Jame just disappeared into the dark. This time, there's a lot of blood. Yeah. Face wounds bleed a lot. Being cut to the bone bleeds a lot. God. Jame has left a very significant blood trail. Yeah. And so this is why... Finally, someone breaks the inviolate barrier of Gothragor and mm-hmm. goes up to search the High Lord's study. Mm-hmm. Because the trail of blood leads through there. Yeah, and they lose her in the High Lord's study until some poor unfortunate Caneron cadet, because you know these are Caneron cadets. Oh, God, yes. Some poor unfortunate Caneron cadet is like, well, there's a catwalk to the other tower where the High Lord's bedroom is. Maybe she's there. And all of the cadets are like, you remembered, you can go you check. Go. Bye. Go on. <laughs> because all Kendar have really horrible agorapho- uh, like acrophobia. They're all yeah. terrified of heights. And the Canerons especially have terrible fear <sighs> of heights because Lord Caneron has terrible fear of heights. <laughs> and <sighs> this poor child has such a bad fear of heights that after she comes back from the catwalk, she throws up behind the High Lord's chair in his oh, study. Yeah. Which, classy. Very classy. So they're all, they're like, all right. The North is fucking gone. Like, we must have been out for longer than we thought. She must have made it all the way across the catwalk and down the other tower Mm -hmm. while we were confused, which means she could be anywhere in the entire keep by now. And speaking of could be anywhere, says the Brandon King captain, uh, there are two assassins that are missing and one of them is a guildmaster. So we have that to deal with. And the Kaneroff fucking guards. I, oh my God. The Kaneron guards are just like... (laughs) Well, they'll be gone by now, so we don't need to fucking worry about it. Because they're dumb as rocks. They're not dumb as rocks. They're just so obsessed with never admitting that they're wrong. And which kind of makes sense, given that Kaldane is the lord of the house, and you've got Kalistine. I mean, those are the highborn uh, that we know of in the Kanoran. And yeah. anything that's wrong basically is a death sentence. So that's all they really I was care wrong about. Either. Yeah, no shit. No shit. <laughs> I, like, on the one hand, this woman has caused so much damage just oh. tonight. But on the other hand, I wouldn't admit I was wrong either if that's yeah. where I was living. Like, yeah. Jesus. But so they, what they have done is they've piled up all of the stripped assassins' bodies and then just sort of like put the mirror clothing on top of them, <laughs> like to deal with later. <laughs> so they've just kind of sealed this body, this pile of bodies, and they're just like, all right, we got to figure out what the fuck happened. Yeah. <laughs> There's one line that I really want to mention, and that is the Brandon captain is harping on this. Like, what the yeah, hell but- do you mean we're just going to close everything up? And the line that really, really sticks with me is the Caneron captain shook her head like a baited bear. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I have underlined too. And that 
just really captures the shitty situation that the Canaron Kendar are stuck in because they really are just the epitome of being stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, and I also think um, this is where we find out where the other who the other highborn target of the assassins is, and it's the so-called Randier heir. We'll yeah. get back to him. Yep, and like. Uh, and of course, this is where the Brandon captain brings up the outstandingly good point that Jame has gone back into hiding, injured, so mm-hmm. good fucking luck finding her this time. And then she says, with all due respect, how could your lady have been so stupid? We could have war over this. Yeah. And like, that's the real problem. And that's yeah. the real problem. All of the other captains start to show up because they're all just like, hey, hot take, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> What was that wind? What happened to this building? What was that, like, scream that terrified all of our ladies out of their wits? And then the Ardith captain is like, it reduced our chenier to, like, seizures. Yeah. Like, James wrecked the chenier. Yeah. So, of course, all the captains have rolled up and they're like, all due respect, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> and and we have all eight houses represented here. Everyone's here. <laughs> Everyone's here except... Except for the North, of because, course. Yeah. Because A, there are no North guards in the women's world. Mm-hmm. And B, we get this insight into what's going on with the North. And it's Rowan with the North, co- like the entire North battalion at the gate of the women's world in their own home. In their own home. Being denied entry. Oh my God. Rowan is even a woman. Yeah. <laughs> That's so amazing. And it's it gives such a remarkable insight into how ostracized Torison is. He's the high lord. This of is his th- home. This yeah. Rowan is his steward. She should be able to go any goddamn place she pleases. Yeah. And they're being denied entry to the women's world at their own fucking gates. I know. My I'm God. really angry on their behalf. <laughs> um But I do think I do think it's worth mentioning. The Jaren captain rolls up and says, oh, I see someone got in the North's way after all. And oh, my God, I love the Jaren. I know I just I was I was really just upset on the North's behalf, but the Jaren can stay. The Jaren can remain. They and the Daniar and maybe the Adir, they can stay. The Brandon can stay. Everyone else can leave. Everybody else needs to be kicked (laughs) out. And of course, the Caneron doesn't lie. Uh-huh. But almost doesn't tell anyone yeah, what happened. Yeah. Because the Jaren, of course, is like, all right, cool. If the tissue did this entire like thing and ripped the roof off this building and gutted the death banner hall and destroyed these windows, whose blood is that on the floor? Yeah. And the Caneron would not have answered were it not for the Brandon. Yeah, and the Brandon are the ones who are like, oh, well, the Lady Callistine fucking slapped the High Lord's sister with a razor ring and cut her cheek open to the bone. Also, this is a pile of assassins. Also, do you like our pile of bodies that we've covered with invisible cloth? And the Jaren is just like, oh, shit, so someone really fucking got in the North's way, huh? It's a wild conversation. It is, is a wild a conversation. conversation. Oh. And like... I think it's especially telling that while the Randon are all, like, looking around at each other, trying to figure out what the fuck they're gonna do, they're thinking about how there hasn't been an argument like this in the women's halls since there was apparently a quarrel between the North matriarch, Kinsey, James' great-grandmother? Great-great-grandmother. She's Gant's grandmother, is she not? No, she's Gant's great-grandmother, I think. 
fucking family tree. Because we don't find that out until much later on in one of the later books. There's a list of characters. I'm looking oh. this up. Okay, you're looking I'm, that I'm, up. I'm looking this up. I have so many clips on my book. I can't open my book. Kinsey is Torson and James' great-grandmother. Okay. But so Kinsey and the Randier matriarch Roneth, who you may have heard me tenderly refer to as the bitch of Wilden, they argued, but that hadn't come to blows because the Shadow Guild struck first yeah. and killed Kinsey and all the North ladies. Yeah. And then Roneth swore that there would never be a North matriarch in the halls again as long as she lived. And just dropped that and... And then no one investigated for 34 years. No yeah. one investigated for 34 years. Nobody even talked about it. Oh my God, guys. <laughs> God. Like, drop Oops. that little thing. <laughs> Holy crap. Um, yeah. But here's what's interesting. The reason why that reflection has risen up, and it's clearly like this elephant that none of the captains want to talk about, but they just, it just hovers there like the heads, the floating heads of the dead assassins. That comes about because... Oh my god, the, yes. The, the Coleman are petty, right? Uh, the Coleman are petty. The Coleman are petty. The Comans say dryly, or they say, well, at least at least it's only a lady. Think how much worse it would have been if this had happened to someone important. And Danior, who is, of course, Holly. I imagine this being said in Holly's tone. A, lighthearted. And B, Holly, other than Jame, is Tori's only relative. Yeah. And he's a distant relative at that. Yeah, yeah. Right, says the Danior. It's only the si only the High Lord's sister, his only surviving blood kin, and that just kind of seals the deal. Yeah, where all the captains are like, "Holy shit!" Quiet as the man is, I don't see him letting this pass without comment. Yeah, and this is where the Randier captain finally shows up, late to the fucking party. God, the Randier are so creepy. They're so Randier creepy. are kind of creepy. They really are. But so this is where the Randier captain shows up. And the Randier captain, who's very creepy, by the way, has a solution oh, to offer. Man. And the solution she offers is if the damage is repaired before the High Lord returns, how much complaint can he make even if the girl is so ill-bred as to tell him? God. Um, the choice to frame Jane reporting a assault on her person that easily could have killed her as being ill-bred as being the equivalent of, like, a child crying to their father for help mm -hmm. is infuriating. Oh, God. Because the thing is, the thing is, they don't know Jame at all as a person. It doesn't even occur to her to tell Tori. No! No! It doesn't even occur. And I think it's almost hilarious because this entire book is her, like, kind of going on the run for, like, various reasons. Mm -hmm. And admittedly, Tori's not his best self right now. <laughs> As, as we've mentioned. But I even think if someone had been like, hey, the reason you're having a bunch of weird dreams is because Jame was slapped with a poisoned razor ring and it did some stuff to her. Yeah. And you're kind of picking it up by, by like consonants because you're her only blood relative. I think maybe even Torison might have gotten his shit together for that. I think so. I think so. Context matters. It would matters. have maybe been a very different book. <laughs> 
<laughs> but so the reindeer proposes that they have a healer at the priest's college who is so powerful that he once nearly restored life to a sheepskin coat and God. they could have him here in two days at most probably less Cue the image of one of my favorite people in this book. Dun da da! We know who this healer is. Kindry. Incoming Kindry alert. Absolutely. He gets a nice pink tab in my book. I'm very happy to start using it. I'm I very excited. I think it's so great that you still. <laughs> I have totally given up on the tabs. Totally. Yeah, given mom up on sent the tabs. me every tab she has. I have so many. So many tabs because. And the Brandon is the one who makes the very good point of like, hey, 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 uh, we should at least ask Rowan, Torrison's steward. Yeah. Because this happened in the old North Keep. This is Torrison's sister. She's a North. We should definitely at least clear this with Rowan before we yeah. let the reindeer just prescribe treatment. Yeah. And the Caneron's response is, the matriarchs made me responsible for the kid, and the only other death in the halls was one of my cadets, so I say this is my business, send for the healer, and we're not going to risk civil war over a scratched face. Yeah. It's not a fucking scratch, it's a cut to the bone, oh, done on purpose man. with malicious intent to a restrained opponent. Um, yeah. Calistine can suck a fucking dick. I hate her so much. Yeah. I hate her so much. I hate Calistine so much. Well, this is a Calistine hate podcast now. It's about <laughs> how much we hate Calistine. Well, it's going to change. And, you know, Calistine is such a piece of work. But then we really get to know her father. And then hey, it's going to change. Lyra's perfectly decent. Lyra's great. Lyra's I'm, great. I'm, Calistine doesn't get a pass because her father's shitty. You know who else is shitty? Fucking Ganth. Yep, Fucking absolutely. Ganth. And you oh, know no. what? Tori isn't at his best in this chapter, let alone the rest of this book. But I still, like, he still fucking tries. But see, here's the thing. The loathing of Calistine does not diminish at all having met Caneron and getting to know Caldane. Whereas with other people that we meet, we kind of get to like them a yeah. little bit more. Yeah, I think, the, I think the thing that really cements my hatred for Calistine is once we know Lyra a little better, actually. Yes, because yes. Because, like, hey, Lyra, not the shiniest rock in the garden, mm -hmm. um, makes a lot of bad choices. Mm -hmm. Not a great person when we first meet her through Graykin, mm -hmm. but like she tries. She, she puts tries. In the effort. She yeah. puts in the effort to be not like her father. And yep. the more I know her, the more I hated Calistine when I was first reading these. And now it's gotten to the point where I'm rereading them for like the four billionth time. <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, Calistine showed up on page one and I already want to hang her out a window by the ankle <laughs> until she begs for mercy. <laughs> Brenweir. She Brenwyr. shall be hanged by the neck until dead. <laughs> it is decreed. It is decreed. Make it so. Um, sorry, so, I got distracted by how much I hate Calistine. That is completely fair. Calistine is awful. Absolutely awful. But fortunately, yeah. all of the captains decide that they are just going to go close up their own respective halls because there are two more assassins still out on the loose. And the reindeer uh, captain goes off to send for Kindry, for the healer. And the only people left are Brenweir and the Brandon captain. Yes. And Brenweir is, has been sitting on the step with her face in her hands. And when she takes her hands away from her face, her captain realizes that there's like blood pouring from her ears and her eyes are flecked with red like she's been crying blood. And she says, save your questions. I can't hear them anyway. And if you're staring at me, don't. 
Yeah. Because as we heard from the Ardeth, James fucking Master Rune near miss hit the Shaneer like a tank. And the stronger yeah. Shaneer you are, the more it hit. Yeah. Which means that like Brenweir, who I would say save for James is the strongest destructive Shaneer we meet. Yep. She's blind and deaf for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And she, there's this essence of independence in Brenweir where the captain does not help her down the stairs. The captain just basically hovers to pick her up if she falls. And Brenweir finds her way down the stairs by touch. And in doing that, comes to the place where Aralyn's death banner should be hanging and feels only bare wall. Yeah. Did you want to talk about her response? I do. So we talked a little bit about Brenweir and what she calls ill-wishing, which is... Um, Brenweir is a Shanir Maledite or a Maledict, which I actually Googled and Maledite and Maledict are synonyms, um, because English is a nightmare of a language. (laughs) But Brenweir is a Shanir Maledict, which means that she can speak curses, which are like half prophecy and half just like pure, raw, malicious energy. Yeah. And... When she touches the place where Erolyn's banner used to hang, she says, Roofless and rootless, blood and bone, cursed be and cast out. And she can't even hear herself speak. And then after the curse is finished, she says, Oh, Erolyn, and the captain has to lead her away. God. And Brenwyr's words, like, the way these curses work is that they always reach the person they're intended for. Mm -hmm. And so her words like echo up the stairs all the way up to Jame, who the way she hid is absolutely insane given the fact that she's still half numb, like she's only just getting sensation back. She's Mm -hmm. maybe been poisoned because she's like, I'm really dizzy. I'm like really faint and lightheaded and I it's more than just blood loss. I'm afraid yeah. Calistine poisoned her blade. She's lost a lot of blood. She's maybe been poisoned. It's been a long time since she got regular sleep. She probably hasn't eaten all day. <laughs> and also she recently used two master runes in a row. <laughs> and she's still half numb. Uh, she's gotten motion back, but she's still pretty well, like, numbed from her clip with the Shadow Assassin. Yeah. And with all of that in mind, her chosen hiding place was an exceptional one because no one who knows all of those things would ever assume that someone's solution to hiding from some guards is to climb out onto the catwalk, climb off of the catwalk onto the edge of the tower where the catwalk is affixed, and then hide behind the open door because the open door doesn't sit all the way parallel with a curved wall. God. So she hung out up there above the random meeting, listened to everything, and then after they were done searching for her, crept back into the tower, crept back onto the catwalk into the tower, and just, like, stumbles and collapses into Torison's chair. God. Wild. Man, but so when she so hears Brenwear's curse, she says, Roofless and rootless, the same to you, Brandon. Cursed be. God. I don't know if we ever get proof that Jame is a maladite, but she's something. She is something. She is something. Because, like, her curse sticks a little. Yeah. 
It does. It really does. And she's sitting there and using, like, Senathar techniques to stop the bleeding from her face. And God. she's like, I feel like I just swallowed a live coal trying to choke down that master rune. My teeth feel like they've half been knocked out from the power of it. Like, my face is gonna hurt a lot once it starts hurting. God. She's a mess. Yeah, and she has this moment that I think is really interesting because, like, it's not really rooted in vanity, but like I said, Callistine did Jame a pretty extensive mischief, is how Jame calls it. Mm -hmm. She has done Jame a pretty extensive mischief it with mm -hmm. this slap because, like, it is like a social loss of standing to yeah. be visibly scarred from a slap. And, like... More than that, Jame has worked so hard to have a place in the women's world where she's expected to be and where she would theoretically be welcome if she did a good enough job at being a lady. And a huge part of that is being beautiful. And she's like, I'm not that much to look at, but having a huge scar on my face ain't gonna help. And she's like, I could let the priest show up and he could heal me, but she can't stand the idea of a deep healing. Because... We uh we do get an interesting insight into like some sociopolitics of the Kenserath. Oh good, which good, is good. The, almost all male Shanir go to the priesthood if they're highborn and like disposable. Yeah. But curative Shanir mature much later than destructive Shanir, which makes sense. Yeah. And the problem there is that that means that while lords are always in a rush to get rid of destructive Shanir. The priesthood also has a monopoly on the healers mm -hmm. of the Kenserath because they're just like, hey, you gotta buy your son back if you want a healer. Yeah. Like, no, no, you pay us. And most lords just aren't gonna pay the phenomenal sum of money that the priesthood demands. Yeah. And so, like, Jame is like, I, I, can't, I can't tolerate the idea of anyone fucking around with my soul image, let alone a priest. Yeah. Like... Pre being a priest does stuff to you. I don't want, I don't, I can't deal with that. Yeah. So she's just like, all right, fuck it. Like, I guess this is my face now. <laughs> <laughs> she's afraid of going to sleep, yeah. going into dwarf sleep. Partly because being in dwarf sleep would make her legitimately helpless. Like it yep. would mean that she, she would just be asleep in this tower. And if they decided to do another sweep, they would be able to bundle her off back to the Caneron quarters. No problem. Yeah. And more than that, going into dwarf sleep would heal her face or at least get her a long way toward healing her face but it would also set the scar yeah and there would be no getting rid of it and like on the one hand she can't tolerate the idea of a healer which is her only other option mhm mm but she can't quite she can't quite commit to like the permanence of the scar on her face yeah and i which kind of sad it really is. It's and it's this sad. being really torn between two completely different things. And that's yeah. Jame kind of, that's her, that's her position. She's really just constantly yeah, being torn in half. Both of those options are untenable to her, but she yeah. doesn't really have a third one. No. And in a fairly rare occurrence for Jane, there's no C. There's no mm -hmm. like third option to get her out of this. Yeah. And so she's kind of drifting, like maybe poisoned, maybe half asleep. She can't really tell. And she's looking at the mirror and watching this reflection of two Ugh. figures standing behind her on a balcony over the southern wastes. And she's hearing them talk. And one of them is saying, my boy, it's almost dawn. Don't you mean to sleep at all? And oh, her brother's the answer. 
Her brother's answer is, I will when the chair behind me is empty. God, and poor James. She's like, God damn it, he's blaming me again. (laughs) Yeah, she has this moment of like, he blames me for everything. Yeah. Everything that's not under his control must be my fault. Yeah. Because that's what our father taught him. And speaking of father, his voice shows up. Yeah, she hears Gant's voice speaking to Tori. And I actually have like kind of some weird uh, narrative speculation about this. And Gant's comment is, you were all right until she came back, your darkling half. And she she protests, understandably. She's like, hey, you drove me out into the shadows. Like, you can't blame me for that shit. But the thing I wanted to mention is that I think on a wider narrative scale, a big part of the reason that Gant is wrong a lot. Like, Mm -hmm. the reason that, I don't know about, I don't know how this metaphor is going to work. A big part of the way narratives work, especially like something that's designed to be an epic, is that people who are in line with the core concepts of the epic tend to be the people who do well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, like, in the Kenserath, people who are aligned with the concept of honor are the heroes of the narrative and they're treated accordingly. Okay. Or, like, in Lord of the Rings, the people who succumb to the concept of we could use the ring for good mm-hmm. are going against the fundamental rule of the narrative, which is the ring is bad, don't do mind control even once. Yep. And, yep. like, even Frodo is is in some way penalized for succumbing to the pull of the ring on Mount Doom yeah. because he's, like, the reason he leaves for the Greylands early when he's, like, kind of still a young hobbit, kind of in the prime of his life, could definitely get on with his life if he wanted to, is because he can't shed the influence of having gone against the core narrative. Yes. So with that mentality in mind, the Kenserath as a whole are a narrative about triads. They're a narrative about triumvirates. Things come in threes. Yep. And the things within the Kenserath come in threes, and things that don't come in threes are from outside the Kenserath. Okay, I'm with you. A big part of the reason that I think Ganth is narratively often wrong, and like not just wrong in the sense of he's factually not correct, he's <laughs> often factually not correct, but he's treated as fundamentally going against the core of the narrative is because he tries to structure his world into dualities. He oh, tries okay. to structure his entire worldview into dualities. There's perpetrator and victim. There's black and white. There's right and wrong. And there's trust and betrayal. And like, it's a lot of what fed into his paranoia. It's a lot of what fed into the way he treated Tori. It's a lot of what fed into the way he tries to pit Jame and Tori against each other as good and evil, right and wrong, male and female, black and white. And, like, the problem is that they're not a duality. They're a triumvirate. Yeah, because it's the Tyridon. The Tyridon are a triad. Yeah. And they have to be able to balance each other. And the thing is, dualities are often, even if it's an issue of balance with, like, yin and yang, where, like, Mm -hmm. you need both in order to have a functional whole, Mm -hmm. it's often presented as... These things both balance each other and are in conflict. Triumvirates and triads don't work that way. You need all three to be balanced. Okay. Like, all of them have to work in concert. And so Gant's push to redefine the world into dualities is consistently the reason that he is wrong, correspondingly, the reason that Torison is wrong, and three, the reason that they their actions are so destructive is because in the effort to create a duality out of a triumvirate, 
you have to take someone out of the picture. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going to get more into this as we get more into Ganth's backstory. Yep. But like, I've really been thinking about the fact that this is a big part of the reason that Ganth isn't favored by the narrative. Even when we start to get more compassionate toward him in later books, he's never favored by the narrative. And Tori mm -hmm. is never favored by the narrative when he's under Ganth's control. Yeah. Because it's that drive to redefine a fundamentally, a, a narrative that's fundamentally driven by the concept of like, you have three of this thing and those three of this thing balance each other out. You have the Arinken, the Kendar, and the Highborn. You have creation, preservation, destruction. You have, yeah. you follow me? You have the I priests, yep. the lords, and the random. There's yep. always three. You even have nine major houses of the Kenserath. And by removing one of those legs of the stool, as it were, you create a fundamental instability, like with the R and Ken dropping out of the picture. The Kenar yeah. and the Highborn cannot function together devoid of some sort of outside control because the Highborn's wow. control is too extensive. Ganth, in his quest to turn Jaime and Tori into a clean, like, dyad question of who is good and who is evil, who is dark and who is light, mm -hmm. the drive to create that is fundamentally at odds with what Jaime and Tori are. Wow. I really love that. I really love that a lot. Anyway, Ganth has no genre awareness is the summary of this. Well, and, and that is really so wonderful given that jame has three periscope type seeing yeah she, she's she's connected with tori and so she sees tori's perspective she has that periscope and then she's connected with graykin and has that Oof. periscope and she sees him in Caneron's dungeon Ugh. And then she she is intricately connected with the maiden on the ivory knife. So she has that periscope mm -hmm. vision as well. That's oh, I can't wait to read through the rest of these books with that perspective in mind. I love that. It's important to understand the core aspects of the narrative in which you find yourself or else the narrative in which you find yourself is going to kick your ass. Yeah. God, I learned so many cool things from you. That is so awesome. Anyway, so so do you want to talk about the 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 visions? I don't think we need to go into a ton of depth because okay. these two aren't like the one with Tori. There's not like a metaphorical layer. Yeah. These it's... are James seeing what's currently happening. It ain't great. Nope. And she is understandably pretty concerned. <laughs> Yeah, because Graken is, like you said, in Caneron's dungeons, and Caldane Caldane has is coming up with some awful plans, and then the blonde assassin with the ivory knife is getting bullied by the guild lord, who is disgusting. The guild master is assassin master is completely invisible. He has yellow eyes. He has rotten teeth. His tongue is rotting. His entirety is rotting. Yeah, um, remember how Mir is quite poisonous and people mm -hmm. who use a lot of it often go quite mad yep. and um, suffer a lot of consequences that you might imagine you could suffer if you tattooed yourself with a bunch of poison? Yep. Yeah. The one thing that I did want to mention is I want to mention the reflection of the blonde assassin boy when he's thinking about his 10 or actually 11 assassin apprentice brothers. And it's so heartbreaking. Oh, when the, he's... the moment of getting to see what the assassins are thinking as their souls are caught in the trees. Yeah. yeah. When, the, when the, the young assassin boy is just wondering, you know, where where are you? Where where are my brothers? 
and to yeah. have those those souls that are all still sentient as Bane is snacking on them. Run and hide. Oh, but we are growing cold and stiff. Yes. Where are my hands? It's just really, yeah. really heartbreaking. It's haunting. It, it's yes. like, it's this moment of like this James skipping from one vision to another like yep. this is a really great like depiction of she she feels delirious like mm -hmm. the, the writing feels delirious and she is she's uh, I, I think we get it confirmed that Kater, Calistine poisoned her um, it's she she's yeah. not great regardless she's starting to pick up an infection yeah um, but um, she, this, this scene of the kids in particular is like, oh, man, you know, on the one hand, like, like I said, this, them chasing Jame into the great hall of the, the conference hall is really scary. And I don't blame Jame at all for doing what she has to do to survive this fight. Yeah. Yeah. But like this moment of like stream of consciousness from these kids are like between 13 and 15. Yeah. As they're, they're dying on these trees with their bodies far away and this darker shadow that's older and crueler than they could ever hope to become creeping toward them to tear them to shreds. Ugh. It's kind of a rough moment. It is. It's <laughs> and really... It's really about what I was just talking about. It's not as clean as victim and perpetrator. It's mm -hmm, not as mm -hmm. clean as, like, assassin and target. Like, yeah. on the one hand... Yeah, these people came to kill Jame. On the other hand, this is a far longer, worse death than anything they could have hoped to deliver to her. Yeah. You know, the the gray area nature of the Kenserath is so much more inclined toward mm -hmm. questions mm -hmm. of, like, three, of triads yeah. and triumvirates than it is toward questions of, like, black and white, mm -hmm. right and wrong. Yeah. And I'm going to have more to say about this when we get further into the books. It's going to be really, really good. And Jame sees Bane through the eyes of these shadows <sighs> in the tree as he comes at them. And he says, again, you can't run from me forever. Blood binds. Man. Oh, and that's... Bane. He just that... has to be as creepy as possible all the time. And He's... I love him so much. Like, he has such a good sense of the aesthetic. He's someone who understands exactly what his role is in this narrative, and by God, he's gonna play it to the hilt every second of this story. And I gotta, I gotta say, I respect it. Yeah, I gotta absolutely. say, I respect that. He is thoroughly consistent, and it, it his oh, repetition of "you can't run for me forever" is what brings Jane to her feet, and is what really snaps her back to shouting for Tori. And this wonderful yeah. moment when. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you. we were talking last time about Tori walking away from her with the line, I refuse to dream this. And yeah. he says it again here. He's clearly been saying this a fucking lot over the last like six months or so. Yeah. Because he sees her jump to her feet in the mirror and he says, I refuse to dream this. And then she like realizes that her reflection isn't quite right. It's definitely Torison. And he looks just like her. He even has a smear of blood on the same cheek. Yep. But like when she tries to take a step forward and ask him to wait for her, she trips because her legs are still kind of messed up. Because 
blood loss. Yeah, and and she shouts, "Damn it, where are you?" And she shouts for Tori, "Come to me, brother, come!" And, and of course, she should know better than this. She now. should know better because the the other brother comes to her. And Bane is just sitting in Torison's chair and stands up to smile at her. And James just has this moment. This is what I was talking about with James panicking after the fact. Like, mm -hmm. it's just been too much. It's just been too long a night. This isn't yeah. really in and of itself that terrifying, although she does definitely think Bane is here to kill her. Yep. But, like, she just thinks to herself, run, hide. And then mm -hmm. she kind of checks out for a while. And she just <laughs> hear sees this, like, haze of images like, the, she's definitely dissociating pretty yep, badly. Yep, definitely. Definitely. And she manages, she realizes that she has managed to run all the way to her room in the Caneron quarters, and she's sitting on the mattress, like, completely enveloped <laughs> in down from where the mattress was slashed open. And what I imagine, because we don't know this for sure, but she just, like, books it for her, for her little room, changes her clothes... Yeah, she's dressed in her traveling clothes, like boots, pants, dehen. Exactly. And then just plops down on her mattress and sending feathers flying all over the place. And that's when she comes back to herself, realizing that she has to be conscious and cognizant because no dream of hers would be as innocent as being surrounded by feathers. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that that's how she knows she's cogent again. Yeah. And she's finally starting to be able to feel the cut. And Ugh. this is something I wanted to mention briefly is that this book does a really good job despite the fact that it's an easy trap to fall into with this kind of hard gender segregation mm -hmm. to be like it to be very dismissive of women's work basically yeah like it's the concept of like oh well you know women's work doesn't matter like okay yeah Mr. fucking reddit chain like calm down let's see how long you survive after the apocalypse without the ability to do a little bit of basic sewing you know yeah. like <laughs> Cool. You can't cook? I'm sure that's going to go great for you. Absolutely. Sorry. Not that I'm petty at all. Like, oh, <laughs> you do knitting. That's so feminine. Yeah, bitch. I like being able to make a hat. Get off my yeah. ass about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's easy to fall into that trap when you write a narrative that has this sort of hard gender segregation. Mm -hmm. But like this book, even though the women's world is, like, deeply toxic in, I would say, kind of a different way from the rest of the Kenserath, yep. <laughs> kind of a different toxic, despite that, they're really good about, this. these books are really good about, they're not worthless just because mm -hmm. they're treated as worthless by the society. Yes. And, like, the skills that are developed in the women's world are all of them great, no, but they're also the best cryptographers in the Kenserath. They're also like, they have access to magic that the rest of the world really isn't fucking thinking about. Like, hey, yeah. Calistine's potion didn't work, but that's still some next level shit. Yeah. There's a lot going on in the women's world that is equally as dangerous and equally as valuable. For example, as James starts to be able to feel the left side of her body again, mm -hmm. she uses Senefar pain management techniques that she had learned in the women's world. Because yeah. since women go through childbirth, the women's world has pain management techniques that the, the Randon just don't. That Tyrandus didn't know. Yeah, like not even Tyrandus knew these things because he just didn't ever need to. Yeah. this th I just think it's great. I think Miss Hodgel does such a good job of walking the line between having a sexist society 
and doing a pretty good job of not writing a sexist book, which is a difficult balance to strike because there's a lot of really good, incisive gender commentary being made with the existence of the women's world. But it would have been very easy to get dismissive of the women's world. If anything, the women's world is more dangerous than the wider world because at least in the wider world, Jane could just fucking punch someone. Exactly. (laughs) Wow. So well said. That's so well said. Yeah. Anyway, and she realizes as she like pieces together that she's dressed and she's like, okay, I have like a strip of linen in my hand. So I assume I was planning to bandage my face. Mm -hmm. And she realizes that she was she's not planning to hide. She's planning to run. Yep. Before we dive into that, I do want to touch very quickly on her recognition that of all of the hallucinations or visions that she had, all of them were true except her thought that Bane was her shadow. Yeah, because she is as yet unfallen and he can never be anything but what he is again. Yes, exactly. All right. Thank you. I just wanted to mention that because it's a, it's, that's an important element when she realizes that she's going to run. Yeah. And I think it's, I think a lot of this we can kind of chug through Yep. because like she does run for it. But one line that I wanted to mention is Jame, having grown up not in the women's world, has a vastly more evolved concept of, thank you, motorcycle. Um, <laughs> your input. Jame, having not grown up in the women's world, has a vastly more evolved concept of consent than the women's mm-hmm. world does. Because all of the captains, like, even the better captains, are like, alright, we'll just get a healer. Yeah. Fuck it. Like, they'll do a deep healing on her. She may or may not enjoy that. We'll probably have to tie her down to make her deal with it, but it'll be yep. fine. Yep. And Jame is the one who's like, hey, 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 I don't want you to go rummaging around in my soul without my fucking permission. Yeah. And the specific way that she phrases it is a forced healing as subtle as a rape. Yeah. And like the Kenserath just don't have that evolved a concept of consent, which is mm-hmm. fascinating to me because mm-hmm. it says so much about the Kendar. And we're yes. going to get more into this later in this book with Kaldane because... Oh boy, are we ever going to get into it with Caldane? Yeah. A consent yeah. warning. Yeah. On legs. Like, I got mm-hmm. a lot of warnings about Bane and everything. Like, hey, you know what? He flayed a kid alive for kicks. Not a great dude. Yeah. But, like, any chapter with Caldane in it is just, like, a consent warning. Absolutely. By nature. Absolutely. But, yeah, anyway. Jame does have this moment of being like, well, at least Tori's never going to believe what he saw in the mirror. <laughs> And I think that's so funny because, like, he's so unstable and sleep-deprived that this is the one time where Jame is absolutely wrong and Tori is 100% just like, okey-doke, we're gonna go do that. We're gonna go do that now. (laughs) Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is the one time that they operate in the polar opposite of what they normally do. Yeah, Jame tries to run and chooses not to make a decision, and Torison does some very decisive stuff. Absolutely. Without thinking about it. But so Jame binds her face like across the bridge of her nose and her cheekbones to tie up her injury. Mm -hmm. Inconvenient place to bandage. And then she puts on a half mask with this attitude of like, fine, y'all don't want to see me without a mask on? You'll never fucking see me without a mask on again. Get fucked. So basically, her face is completely covered with linen and with a mask. Well, she has a, she has linen across the bridge of her nose and her cheekbones and then mm-hmm. a domino mask covering mm-hmm. the top half of her face. Yeah. So like it con- it completely conceals both the bandage and the injury. Yeah. And she manages to sneak out incredibly successfully and at first 
this is where we see Rowan arguing with the hall guards. Like, she's trying to bring the entire garrison of Gothrigor <laughs> into the women's world. Which, hey, hot take, would be a great idea at this moment. It's their house. It's it the is best their idea home. at this moment. Exactly. But Rowan is kicking up such a fuss that no one notices Jame, who crosses the forecourt twice. Yeah, I think... Here's the other thing. I think this is partly they are busy. It's been yep, a while. They are very I, busy. They are very busy. But it's also partly like this is something we've seen before with Jame. She if she really doesn't want to be seen, she's not going to be seen. Yep. And it reminds me a little bit of Aaron in Hero on the Crown. Yes. Where she's like she's kind of, she's like I am stealthy and like <laughs> doing my best and also sometimes the Hafor take pity on me and pretend they can't see me cuz they're nice people. And then later everyone's <laughs> like you were sneaking out. <laughs> no, we you just no have idea. super dope magic. <laughs> um, you just have the gift like real bad. <laughs> But um, she manages to collect Joran and she just like leaves. A post rider almost runs her over, does not recognize her, does not realize that she's a highborn lady, despite being dispatched from the women's world and just keeps right on going. This is definitely a Shanir ability. Definitely. And so like, Jane does the math and she's like, okay, it's 50 miles to Wilden. You can get there in four hours if you ride flat out and remount one time. Yep. Like if you ride your horse to death for two hours and then you get a new horse and you ride that one just as hard, you can make it in four hours. And she's like, so theoretically, a healer priest could be here in eight. So I need to kind of get trucking. Yep. And she has this moment of clarity because she's like, I'm going to rest Ormir. To okay, find good. Break him. Good. I'm so glad you're going to talk about this. I am going to talk about this because I'm going to be feeling kind of fucking defensive of Jane for the rest of this entire goddamn book about it. Like, as soon as she understands where Graykin is and how much trouble she he's in and how much he needs her, yep. she bails. And she even has this moment of like, all right, I have to do this because I'm a good highborn and this is mm-hmm. the honorable thing to do. But because I'm doing this thing and being a good highborn, I'll never be a good highborn lady. I'm permanently destroying yep. my place in the Kenserath. I just have to hope that I'll be able to get my feet under me on the way down. Yeah. That's the pragmatism that I love about her so much because she knows that pragmatically, to be honorable, she has to do the thing which is dishonorable in the eyes of custom, but it is honorable according to the law of her people. And I love that. And she has that root and that anchor of Mark. Yeah. Because Brenweir's curse, of course, comes down and like does a little dance in front of her when she's thinking to herself that making this action of of going to rescue Graken is going to uh, ostracize her from her people forever. And Mark's good, wonderful, fantastic, blessed self is the one who just says, stop hiding, follow honor, and forget the rest. And yeah. that just, that's, that's the music that Jame ends up riding out on. And I just, I love the way that Mark reminds Jame who she is and whose she is. She belongs to and is dedicated to her people. And I really love that. Yeah. And then, so she's headed north to Restormir, 40 leagues away. Bit of a jaunt. Bit of a jaunt. And then we have Tori. Tori. Tori is just in bad shape. I don't have a lot to say about what bad shape Tori's in. He's just falling apart. He's so sleep deprived. He's just falling apart. He's getting mean. He's getting really mean. That, and here's the other thing. 
Again, Ardeth just tried to drug him. Yeah. I'm not saying Ardeth didn't have his reasons. I would also probably have tried to drug Torison at this juncture. Mm-hmm. But like, hey, it's okay to be angry that someone tried to drug you. Yep. 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 <laughs> exactly. That's allowed. It is okay. It is okay. But he he's, A, he makes the comment like, I'll sleep when the chair behind me is empty. And everyone's <laughs> like, okay, Tori. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's what you want, I guess. Okay. And he demands to know whether Burr is going to be okay. And he's like, is there anything worse than that wine than a sedative? And Ardeth is like, well, no, but it was a sedative dosed for a highborn. So I don't know, man. (laughs) Here's something that's interesting. I hadn't realized, and this is really kind of hard. It's an indication of, of how Tori is not himself. Burr had slumped over on the table and was face down in a pool of the narcotic wine. Yeah. So part of what's so heartbreaking about this is that Torison is so far out of it that Burr nearly drowned three feet away from him. Yeah. It takes him a while to notice that Burr is having trouble breathing and he reaches yeah. out and like turns Burr's face to the side so that he can breathe clearly. Because like, even though Tori is in pretty good shape and Ardeth is doing okay for someone who's like 190, they're not strong enough to like deadlift Burr and get him onto a flat surface. So like yeah, slumped yeah. over the tables, kind of how it's going to be for now. Yep, exactly. And he's thinking about how like he and Burr have been together 16 years. They've been through a dozen hells together. They went through Urukarn together and he almost let him suffocate in arm's reach. Yeah. And like, oh. we get an insight into A, Ardeth is kind of addicted to his like drugs like he uses a lot of substances to function the way he wants to function Mm -hmm. which i have some extraneous comments on that and his fronting of being totally cool with being chenier oh yeah 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 because i he's also using some of these abilities to muffle his uh, some of these drugs to muffle his abilities yep but we also get some insight into why it upsets Tori so much. And it's because Tori's worst dread in the world is to be trapped in one of his nightmares and not be able to wake up. Makes total sense. Completely understandable. <laughs> Which, in a way, is Completely interesting because- Stop trying to sedate him. Just like- <laughs> Exactly. Get him drunk. That's what Burr does. Yeah. And it works. It works very, very well. But it's also a similar resonance of helplessness that James felt in- Almost exactly the same time. Especially because, like, Tori is so confused about, like, this slippage he's experiencing between him and Jame that Mm -hmm. he believes he's dreaming. Oh, and he feels like he's he's half convinced that he's having a nightmare and that he can't wake up. And so half the reason he's so panicked is because he believes he's finally gotten stuck in a nightmare. Yeah. And it's because he's too sleep deprived to understand that this slippage between him and Jame could happen at any time. Yeah. Because they're so deeply connected, which he won't even acknowledge. And Jamie had even mentioned in the previous section that she's seen Torison just wipe things away from his memory. Yeah. He's spent a lot of time and effort not thinking about this. And this is where Grimley comes in and he stops and he's immediately like, I smell blood. What (laughs) the fuck happened in here? And Tori (laughs) looks down and realizes that he's managed to grip Kinslayer so tightly that the broken hilt emblem has gashed open his palm. Cue back to the nightmare that Jane was having about the emblem that had the lipless and was chewing and was chewing and mumbling. Oh my god. And 
Uh, Ardeth calls him my boy and, like, oh. gets very, like, concerned. Patronizing. And patronizing. And Tori just reaches the absolute threshold of his ability to deal with that shit. Yeah. And he just says, I'm not your boy. That was Paradin and he's dead, remember? I'm really intrigued by this because of... Do you have anything to say about this? Uh, I got some stuff to say, but most of it is fuck Ardeth at varying octaves. <laughs> So you can go ahead. Part of what I really love about this is when Torison kind of realizes what he said and how he said it. I mean, this is really kind of when Torison is exercising his power and his strength as an incredibly powerful Shinir. If this was under any other circumstances, I would be so proud of Tori, I couldn't fucking breathe. Exactly. But Tori holds himself in so much fierce control and so much self-judgment that he thinks to himself, I wonder if this is what Paradin felt like, lashing out at other people because of his own inadequacies. And I think that that's so tragic that Torison thinks so poorly of himself that he compares himself to someone as awful as Paradin. When he was completely justified to basically tell artists to finally just back the fuck off. Like I said, if this had happened under any other circumstances, I would be outrageously proud of Tori. Yes. And I think it's even more impressive that he forces Ardeth back a step. Like, yeah. Ardeth is shaken by this and he says, my lord, I understand that you're tired and ill. I'll leave you to rest. Yeah. And he leaves. And like, Tor like, hey, Tori's not well. He's not yep. doing good. But he did unequivocally just win around with Ardeth in two sentences. So yep. like, hey. Yeah. That's my boy. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, and it's worth noting that Torison had been wearing the ring yes. on his left hand. Speaking of okay. dualities. Speaking of dualities, he had been using, he'd been wearing the ring on his left hand. Because I, I have a theory about why he's wearing oh. it on his left hand. And my yes, theory please. Most Kensir are left-handed. We know Ganth was wearing the ring on the hand opposite his sword hand. Mm -hmm. because he, uh, Jane broke off one finger from one hand and all the fingers from the other. <laughs> oh, that's a sentence, ain't it? <laughs> it sure is. But so we know that he was wearing it on his either right or left hand, depending on which handed he was. My guess is that he was probably left-handed because the majority of the Kenserath are left-handed. Yeah. That means that it would be standard to wear your your signet ring on your dominant hand, your left hand. Yep. Tori is not left-handed, which means that he's been wearing the signet on his left hand and using the sword with his right hand, and he hasn't been able to figure out why the sword doesn't work. Hmm. 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 Interesting. Interesting. Fascinating. Yes, so after oh. he... Pulls the, the signet ring off to show it to Ardeth in the middle of this argument because he's like, I'm the son of Ganth Greylord and I have the ring to prove it now so you can get out of my way. Yeah, I'm the High Lord. I'm your boss. Yeah, it is this great moment of Tory pulling rank. And by great, I mean, again, if this had happened under any <laughs> other circumstances, I'd be so proud of him. I know! <gasps> I'd be so proud of him. But no. But no. So he puts the ring back on on his right hand. Yeah. And... 
He's standing there listening to Ganth mutter with his hands over his eyes while God. like blood is pouring down one of his ha- his one of his hands onto his face. And this is where Ganth makes the comment, "You were all right until she came back, your darkling half, and now you will never be right again until she is." And then he trails off and we get this sudden switch to Grimly's point of view. Oh, it's so great. Because Grimly hears the voice. Like, Tori says the words in Ganth's voice, which sounds nothing like his own. And then as he's speaking, his hands slide down his face to cover his mouth and stop the voice. And Grimly has this moment of being like, all right, the Darkling half has to be your sister, who I met and thought was pretty dope. Like, she seemed great. (laughs) She seemed real great. I'm not sure what you're worried about. (laughs) And this is where Tori turns away from, like, uncovers his eyes and, like, drops his hands and looks at the mirror. Mm -hmm. And he sees himself with the smear of blood across one cheekbone. And he sees Jame, presumably, like, trying to reach out to him and then stumbling and lunging for the mirror. Yeah. And this is where he says, I refuse to dream this. And then he draws Kinslayer in his right hand with the ring on it and lashes out at the mirror. And he's he's in a building. He is in a real he's inside. Ass, honest to God building with brick walls Foot and thick walls. walls. Foot thick and walls. He takes Kinslayer and attacks the mirror that's on the wall and manages to carve not just a little bit of a walkway. He knocks the entire goddamn walls down. Yeah, the mirror disintegrates and so does a f- the foot thick wall all the way out through the brick to the like sunlight. And yeah. Grimly, who has like tackled Burr to the ground during this chaos, like picks himself up and looks around and he's like, well, I guess you ma- finally made the sword work, huh? And then he looks around and he realizes Tori's not there. Because of course, of course, of course he's not there. Of course he's not there. He realizes that Tori left the room while they were getting their breath back. Mm -hmm. And he's on Storm, his horse. Bareback. Bareback with Kinslayer in hand, riding out of the courtyard at top speed. And Grimly remembers, Grimly is a poet and a scholar, so he knows all of the old songs. He knows what the fuck is up. He knows that when you unsheath a warblade, especially Kinslayer, it is never sheathed again until someone is killed. Yeah, like, I think Kinslayer explicitly can't be sheathed until it's killed someone. Yeah. But yeah, so... Tori's doing great. Yep. James doing great. The last thing we see is Grimly like, oh my God. Nobody's having a good day. Poor Grimly. Grimly, Grimly is the sanest person of the main characters in this. And I feel very bad for him. Mm, I, know. I guess Briar. Honorable mention to Briar. Honorable mention to Briar. She's not at her best in this book. She's really not. Honorable mention to Briar for someone who will f- in the future be the only sane person in the room. Yes. Oh man. Anyway, do you want me to- well, Yes, I would love for you to read. Could you read after? How much How much do you want to read? I was going to read from Ganth's quote. To the oh, end. good, good. You will never be right again until she is dead. Oh, no, said the wolver. Oh, Tori, no. He dropped down to all fours and ran out of the room, yelping, Tori, Tori, wait for me. <laughs> Grimly tries so hard. Grimly is so wonderful. He's doing his damnedest. He really is. All right. (laughs) This has been the podcast Bound in Pale Leather, and we are really glad that you joined us today. For this long episode. We're (laughs) doing less, we're doing less book next time. (laughs) 
please feel free to send us your thoughts about the Kenserath or any aspect of the Kenserath on Tumblr at the Podcast Bound in Pale Leather or over email at podcastboundinpaleleather at gmail.com or Twitter at podcastbipl. As always, a special thank you to Seth Jones for our intro and outro music. And next time, as Gabe said, we will look at less book. We're going to look at sections one, two, and three of part three, in which a bunch of stuff happens. Yeah, we were originally going to try and do part three in two sections, like we did, like two episodes, like we did part two. That's not going to happen. We're going to nope. do it in three. So we are gonna uh, do it in less three. book next time, shorter episodes in the near future for everyone's benefit, including mine. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, thank you all. And thank you, Gabe. Uh, I'm Catherine. I'm Gabe. Bye. <laughs> I think I know who I am. Bye. <laughs>